turn with me to Second Chronicles 36, and we are finishing the book of Second Chronicles today. You guys excited about that? Why? Why are you excited about that? Something new and exciting. Good answer. Good answer. You saved yourself there on that. All right. So yeah, finishing the book of Second Chronicles, and as we finish up the book of Second Chronicles, we come upon now the last four kings of Judah, and we are going to be seeing how these last four kings of Judah are just going to be continuing on in this perpetual fall uh, of sin and evil and wickedness, and there's just this downward spiral just happening where the nation just is, is getting worse and worse in a sense. The last king that we talked about last week in Second uh, Chronicles chapter, you know, from 33 to 35, Josiah, he was the last good and godly king. Remember Judah, in their history, since the nation divided, Judah had had 20 different kings and only, how many of them were good? Eight. Only eight of 20 were good. Everyone else was wicked, doing evil. They had, had turned away from the word of God and from the God of this word. And so they'd walked in disobedience and it just was not going well. Well, these last four kings now that we're going to cover today are just going to be perpetuating this sin that's going on in Judah. Look at verse 1. It says, Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Now the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz's brother and carried him off to Egypt. So, after Josiah died, uh, they had made, the people of the land had made his son now, Jehoahaz, king, in place of Josiah. And remember, Josiah had kind of a, a tough, you know, end of his life. He had, he had begun to meddle in the affairs of Necho, king of Egypt, and sadly, he got involved in a battle he really didn't have any part being, being a part of, and he ended up dying in battle. So Jehoahaz now is made king, the, the son of Josiah, as was common. And he comes on the scene now, and not much is said about him here in our passage, other than he reigned for only three months, not a very long reign. Now we get a little bit of insight, a little bit more, in the parallel account of Second Kings. And here's what we read about him, Second Kings 23, verse, 20, uh, verse 32. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Now Pharaoh and Necho put him in prison at Riblah, at the land of Hamath that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Now, understand this here. It doesn't say that Jehoahaz, you know, did evil as his father did, because his father didn't do evil. It doesn't say singular, but as his father. So again, encompassing all these kings that had gone before him, and just as all his fathers had done wickedly, and, and walked in disobedience to the Lord, so... Jehoahaz is kind of modeling his life after those things. This goes to show that the reforms that were made by Josiah, as we had seen in our last study there, Josiah did many great things in turning people back to the Lord, but we begin to see that those reforms never really took root in the heart of the people because here now his own son is walking in evil, not following after the good changes that were 
that were made through his father Josiah. It's important for us to say, you know, as we're seeking the Lord, God, would you change my heart? It's not about changing the exterior and saying, all right, if I do these things, then, then that's going to make everything better. Oh, doing the right things is going to help, no doubt. But what we want to see happen is, Lord, change my heart. And let the, let the change come about from the inside out. Do a work inside of me. And the rest will begin to fall into place as that happens. But it didn't happen here in Judah for the people. So after Josiah dies, they're, they're going right back to evil and wickedness. So Necho here, now he begins to flex his muscles in and around Judah. Egypt, remember, had been in a battle with, with Babylon, the emerging world power. But Egypt is looking to take as much real estate and gain as much support from different countries around them to help them in this fight against Babylon because they know this nation's on the rise. Well, they're trying to partner with, with uh, Judah. They're trying to take control of Judah to have, again, extra help and support in going against Babylon. So they begin to tax them all. He takes Jehoahaz away, actually, imprisons him in Egypt, and, and Necho put them under a tax where they'd have to pay nearly, it says here, um, uh, uh, 100 talents of, of silver. And if you're not sure how much that is, it's, it's twice as much as 50 talents of silver um, and then a, a talent of gold. Now, that is four tons of silver. That's a lot of silver. And it's about 75 pounds of gold that they're having to give now to Egypt. And it was a way of just bringing Judah under this kind of vassal state where they were now in allegiance to Egypt. They were having to kind of follow along in submission to Egypt. And that was the way that they would kind of ensure these things, put them in place by taxing them. And then Necho also took Eliakim and changed his name to Jehoiakim and he made him king. Perhaps he's thinking that I'm going to have an easier job with Jehoiakim than I would with with Jehoahaz, uh, really following in submission. So he takes Jehoahaz away, uh, imprisons him in Egypt and he makes now... Eliakim, the new king, and he changes his name to, to Jehoiakim. And that was kind of, again, changing the name was a way uh, of just bringing somebody uh, in subjection to another person's authority. It's kind of like saying, hey, I'm over you now. Uh, when Randy came on as, uh, as the assistant pastor in the church, his name actually used to be, little known fact here in Riverside, his name actually was Brandy. That's where Emily got confused in the announcements. His name was Brandy. We changed it to Randy. We thought that would be a little bit more suitable. And so we changed his name. And just to say, things are going to change now, uh, Randy, here. Um, and so that's what they would do, though, in this day. Change the name and say, hey, you're under my authority now. Perhaps, again, Necho was having a few issues with Jehoahaz and really seeing him come along in submission. So he takes him away, imprisons him, brings Jehoiakim in. And now, here's what we read about Jehoiakim in verse 5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old. When he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. So Jehoiakim continues on now, just in this evil pattern that we're seeing. But now, it's not Egypt checking up on them, it's Babylon. Notice Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him in verse 6. You see, it's at this time that the world powers were shifting. More than a hundred years earlier, Assyria was the world power and they had taken the 10 tribes of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, away into captivity. 722 BC is when that happened. They had taken them away into captivity already. But in 612 BC, the capital of Assyria, which was Nineveh, that fell. And Egypt is looking now to take advantage 
But it's Babylon who's looking to really flex their muscles and take control of surrounding nations. Egypt's control over Judah only lasted for four years. Didn't take long before Babylon comes in and starts to exercise you know, their, their authority. In 605 BC, the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish on the Euphrates. Jeremiah 46 talks about that. And Nebuchadnezzar pursued the remaining Egyptian army all the way back down to the Sinai. And along the way, they began to, to, to step in and take control of Jerusalem and Judah. And it's interesting because all this is documented in the Babylonian Chronicles, which is a collection of tablets that was discovered just in 1887, uh, just you know, last century here, and, and on display, you see it on display in the British Museum today. And so this discovery began to kind of really show again that everything we've seen in the Bible, all these accounts are all lined up, you know? I mean, uh, it's not so much the Bible, or sorry, history, sorry, let me just say it this way. It's not so much archaeology that has to back up the Bible, but more so it's just the Bible that kind of comes along and backs up archaeology. Oh, you found some, some, some tablets here that talk about this battle and, and, and Necho coming down and, and taking over. Yeah, it's all right here for us. We've already, we already knew that, right? Bible just backing up archaeology. I think that's great. So, but that's an interesting find that came up that again, critics of the Bible just have to keep realizing that the Bible is true and accurate. So Jehoiakim had, had, um, Oh, let me just say this here. When Nebuchadnezzar came against him here in verse 6, that was now the, the first deportation of people from Jerusalem to Babylon and into captivity. This was in 605 BC. There were three deportations that happened, as we'll see as we unfold in this chapter. But there were three deportations that happened where, where Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came against um, Jerusalem and took some people back. In this first deportation, just a small group went back, but one of the, the key people were Daniel. Daniel, at this point, is taken to Babylon, where he's in captivity. But it's there in captivity that God kind of raises him up, right? To be a, a, just this wise man that the Lord begins to use. And we'll, we'll talk a bit more about Daniel uh, later on here. So Jehoiakim, you know, he'd started off as a vassal king of Egypt, in submission to Egypt. But now, he's a vassal king to Babylon and to Nebuchadnezzar. And it tells us in 1 Kings 24, 1, that Jehoiakim rebelled against the king of Babylon. But what Jehoiakim does not understand at this point is that he's fighting the wrong person. Because everything that's coming against him is not the result of a power-hungry nation like Babylon. It's the result of a disobedient nation to God. Everything that's befallen them, they might think, we've got to fight, we've got to stand up, we've got to come against this invading army. But what they're failing to see is that this invading army is the very instrument that God is using to bring judgment against his own people for their own disobedience. And in, in fact, numerous times in the book of Jeremiah, the word was given to the people to submit to the Babylonians. We read in Jeremiah 27, verse 9, and, and catch this because... This would go against every bit of reason and logic that the people would, would have in this day. But here's what Jeremiah says. It says, Therefore do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out and you will perish. But the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. Do you notice what Jeremiah is saying to the people? Those that submit to Babylon are going to be spared. That's what they're hearing. Now that would go against every bit of reason and logic to think, 
wait a second, this is the invading army. We got we to gotta fight to keep our land, to keep our city here. We're not going to let them come in. But the word gives, the word goes out. Submit and be spared. It seems like an odd thing to do. But again, like I say, this was God's instrument to carry out his judgment upon a nation that had disobeyed him relentlessly. And God says, you want to be spared? Just submit. Which was the problem all along because they had not submitted to the Lord. They hadn't, submitting to the Babylonians would be them submitting to the word of God and submitting to the Lord. That's what got them in this predicament to begin with. And it can be a hard thing when it seems to go against everything you think is the right thing to do, right? Or we think, that, that seems so contrary to the, the, the things that I would typically do in that situation. But God will oftentimes do things that seem so crazy and strange, but it's so as to go beyond all human realm of working and show that he's at work. Just because something seems absurd, in fact, sometimes when, when that word of the Lord comes to you, and it seems so absurd, usually you can bank on that being of the Lord. Because if it's simple, well then, he doesn't get a lot of glory out of that. But when he does things that are so outlandish and so absurd, well then, it's so clearly, this is of you, God. This can never come about without you. So Jehoiakim, he doesn't listen to Jeremiah. He rebels against the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And, and it says that he's taken away now to Babylon. He's, he's bound in bronze fetters in verse 6 and take, carried off to Babylon. Now, Jehoiakim never even makes it to Babylon. He ends up dying and being buried with the burial of a donkey just outside the gates of Jerusalem. A sad, horrific kind of death and, and, and a very sad kind of burial. It wasn't, an, uh, it wasn't a burial befitting of a king. And this was, again, a man that wasn't walking in the ways of the Lord. So he dies a very unfortunate death and Buried in an unfortunate way. Verse 7. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did and what was found against him, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Now, this is a very, very, think about this, what these people are going through. It's a very sad time in the history of Judah because now we've got a pagan king coming into the temple, taking all the goods from the temple and carrying them off to his own pagan temple back home. I mean, these people would just be thinking, how is this happening? How could this be? Very sad time here. But this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the word that Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah had a little bit of a, a lapse of judgment there at the end of his life when he invited the Babylonian ambassadors to come down. And Hezekiah, kind of in a way of, of pride, begins to show them all the riches they'd had and showed them all the treasures of the temple. And then Isaiah, back in that time, spoke to him and said this in, Isaiah, in 2 Kings 20, verse 16 to 17. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So God makes it very clear, you know, that this time is coming. And so here we begin to see the beginning of the fulfillment of that. It's going to happen in more fulfillment as we move along here. But now we move on to the next king. As we've already mentioned, Jehoiachin, he's on the throne. And it says in verse 9 that he was eight years old when he became king. 
And he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah Jehoiakim's brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. Now, 2 Kings 24, verse 8, interestingly says that, that Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin, however you want to say it, he was 18 years old when he became king. Here we read that he's eight years old. Now, many believe this is kind of one of those rare copyist errors because many of the even Hebrew manuscripts uh, record that he was 18 years old. And that seems to be more right in line with what we see about Jehoiakim and the, the children he had and the age that he was. So most likely, uh, yeah, he's 18 years old here. But verse 10 shows us now the second deportation that happens. This happens in 597 BC where they take another group of people from Jerusalem back to Babylon in captivity. And of this group, Ezekiel is one of the men that goes back. And it's there in Babylon that Ezekiel receives and, and, and gives his, his prophetic ministry there. And Nebuchadnezzar made Jehoiakim's brother, which ends up being Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, makes him the new king. And that all connects us to a very interesting word given to Jehoiachin from God through Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah chapter 22. How many people have heard of the, the blood curse of Jehoiachin? The blood curse of Jehoiachin. If you haven't, that's okay. I just made it up. So it's all good. No. But let's read this here because this is known as this blood curse of Jehoiachin, which for many people create a bit of problem. Let's talk about that a little bit here. It says in Jeremiah 22, verse 20 to 30, is this man, Kunai, which is Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin, is this man a, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now, we know that Jehoiakim did have children, but it says here that he'll be childless. But more so, what's being written about him is that he will not have a child that will continue that lineage of the throne and continue to have a child on the throne. Which, of course, up until this day, there's been the successor to the line of David on the throne. But now this word has been given that Jehoiakim, the line of David is going to stop with you. You will not have a child on the throne any longer. Now, how would this work? Because you see, God all along has promised his son of David to rule on the throne of David forever. See, the problem is that the curse of Jehoiakim seems to invalidate Jesus' right to the throne of David. The Davidic covenant promised that the Messiah, the son of David, would reign forever on, Jerusalem, uh, on Jerusalem's throne. It says in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 and 14, And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. God's saying, David, from you and your descendants, I'm going to establish the throne forever. And for centuries, this curse now to Jehoiakim confused the rabbis. They thought, how can we no longer have a child of Jehoiakim on the throne and yet... 
have a Messiah that's going to emerge from the line of David and be able to occupy that throne. How is this going to all play out? How can this work? How can the Messiah, the future king, be the family of David and still be a member of the royal succession of kings? Because again, the crown was passed down from father to son. And since Jehoiakim's son would never sit on the throne, it seemed that God had a problem. Well, here's how God solves the puzzle. Because according to Matthew's genealogy now, we see Matthew's gospel, the genealogy of Jesus. It, it, it follows the line of Joseph, Jesus' stepdad. He was a descendant of Jehoiachin and Solomon. Thus, Jesus was the successor to the royal line. But since God was his father and, and, and Joseph only stepdad, well, he didn't have the cursed blood of Jehoiakim. He wasn't a blood relative of that line. But the prophecy said that Messiah had to be David's blood relative. That's where Luke's genealogy kicks in. Because Jesus' mother, Mary, which Luke's genealogy traces the line from, Mary was also descendant of David, but through his son, Nathan, not Jehoiachin. Jesus, then, was a natural heir through Mary, and his, and his legal heir was through Joseph. In other words, God had this all worked out, the puzzle solved. That's why the, the virgin birth of Jesus is so important, because it bypasses that blood curse of Jehoiachin, and yet Jesus is still a rightful heir to the throne, both legally and naturally through blood. That's why there's two genealogies given. And the virgin birth becomes that much more important. Listen, it's a reminder for us that when things might seem hopeless, when things might seem like things aren't adding up, things aren't coming together, how is this going to work out? When things feel like that in our own lives, and they will, we never have to give up on God. We never have to, to, to think, how is God going to do this? Because God always is at work behind the scenes and he's bringing his plans and promises into place often in times that we just don't see coming. And yet God is at work. The rabbis struggled on this. How is this going to come out? God's just sitting back going, just you wait guys, you got it all worked out. It's all good. Let's see how this is all going to come into fruition here. Well, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Zedekiah, who's Jehoiakim's uncle. He appoints him now as the next king. Verse 11 says this. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So Zedekiah becomes kind of a puppet king now for Nebuchadnezzar. He's kind of a man that doesn't have much of a spine because as Jeremiah is there and he's ministering to Zedekiah personally, Zedekiah on one hand would be like, oh, Jeremiah, that sounds great. Yeah, you're right, Jeremiah, we got to do it. He would never follow through. In fact, it tells us that he would have other people speak in his life and dissuade him from following Jeremiah's counsel, which was the counsel of God. And Zedekiah would, would not heed Jeremiah's word. It says that he didn't humble himself before Jeremiah here. And so Zedekiah wasn't a strong man. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar seemed to appoint him as king. Like this guy's going to just follow in line with what I'm going to do. And so he's kind of a, a, a puppet king. But what's interesting is that all during this time now that we see in the history of Judah, Judah's weakening, one king after another doing evil, wicked, disobedience. And the nation 
is not only strong, it, it, it weak spiritually, but it's becoming weak just physically. They're getting on the decline. And all the time, Babylon is just getting stronger and stronger. But all through this time, understand this, Jeremiah is on the scene preaching to all the people. And he's preaching to all the people in Judah to repent from their evil and to turn to the Lord. And yet this is quite amazing because Jeremiah's ministry lasted for 40 years. And in those 40 years, we don't hear a lot of results that came from it. We hear a lot of people that continued on in evil and wickedness, but we don't hear about a a revival, a, a general repentance that was taking place in the nation. 40 years without a lot to show for it. And yet Jeremiah goes down as one of the great prophets of God. Isn't that wonderful? Because in the economy of God, success isn't evaluated as we will or would in the world's eyes. Success is valued by numbers, results, by what happens. But in God's economy, success is evaluated by faithfulness. And Jeremiah was a man that was faithful. And oftentimes... Faithful under fire, under persecution, against backlash, against people denying him and and not listening to him. He was faithful under fire. And Jeremiah goes down as a great prophet of God, not with a lot of results, but because of faithfulness. That's exactly what God desires of us. God isn't so concerned with your success rate, with the results you bring in. God's more concerned with you simply being faithful to what he's called you to do. What has the Lord called you to do? What, what ministry has the Lord led you in? What things has God put on your heart to carry out for him? God isn't concerned with so much the success rate, the results of that, as he is with just simply you being faithful. And when we're faithful to do what God's called us to do, that's what he determines as being successful. Aren't you glad for that? The results are in the Lord's hands. Even as we're going out to be, to be witnesses in this world, sharing the gospel as I pray that you're doing through the week. Listen, this, this day on Sundays is meant to be a day where we come together, we encourage each other, we get encouraged in God's work, but so that we can get out in the world and make a difference and be, be evangelists, be witnesses, be sharing the good news with people. That's the purpose here. But God's not concerned with how many you brought into the kingdom because that's not your job. Your job is to be faithful in sharing the gospel and the good news. And let the Lord work out the results of that. Let the Lord work in the hearts of those people. And that brings a, a whole lot of weight off me to know. Because sometimes we, we back away from witnessing because we think, my, my strategies aren't working. My, my tools don't seem to be the right tools. I don't see a lot of results. And we back away thinking, maybe it's just not my, my gifting, my calling. Listen, we're all called to the Great Commission. To go and share the good news. We're all called to that. But you don't have to worry about the results. You just be faithful to share the good news and let the Lord take care of the rest. Amen? Jeremiah was just such a man. And, and if you need some encouragement, just turn to Jeremiah and see that this guy, man, he was up against a battle continuously. He didn't have a lot of people believing the word, but he stayed 40 years ministering, being faithful. And I'll tell you, man, he's going to have a great seat of honor in heaven. That's for sure. Verse 13. And, speaking of Zedekiah, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. 
Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So Zedekiah didn't just ignore Jeremiah, but now he foolishly rebels against Nebuchadnezzar and he hardens his heart against turning to God. Zedekiah began to kind of go to the new king of Egypt and try to get support and help from him to fight against Nebuchadnezzar. When all along, Jeremiah is saying, that's not going to prosper. <laughs> but he does so anyways. He, he, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And it doesn't go well for him. And not only was the king in rebellion, but all the leaders of the priests and the people were transgressing more and more to the point where all the sin was getting carried out right in the house of the Lord. Could you imagine that? When we come to the house of the Lord, we're like, oh man, I got to make sure that I'm cleaned up, man, that I got everything sort of, you know, either repented of or tucked away so that nobody will see, right? Could you imagine coming to church thinking, man, I've really been doing my best all week to not sin, to not do anything wrong, but Sunday I'm going to set it all out, man. I'm going to let it all loose. I've been storing it all up. And we just come and just sin in the, wouldn't that be awful? That's what they were doing though. They're coming to the house of the Lord and they're just perpetuating this sin and they're just letting it all out here in that place. Awful. But considering all the sin and evil being done, you think the Lord would have every right to just take them out and to take them out long ago, right? But we see God's grace and mercy here. Look at verse 15. It's incredible. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Do you hear that? God had compassion on his people. And so he sent messenger. He sent prophet after prophet to try to wake them up, to try to draw their attention to the sin that they're in and their need for repentance. God didn't just, in a quick kind of wrath, say, that's it, I'm done with you guys. He was long-suffering. And over hundreds of years, he just kept holding back, holding back, giving them opportunity to repent. But there came a time where it says, until there's no remedy. There was always a remedy for them to repent. But there came a time where in God's eyes, he sees these people are not going to change. They're not going to repent. They're not going to turn. So I'm going to do something drastic. I'm going to bring my judgment that's going to take them away to Babylon and to be there in Babylon that God will use that to again now really wake them up to the reality of where they're at and where their sin got them. And in fact, God had been faithful because this is something he had told them is going to happen if they Walk in rebellion and disobedience to his word. All the way back in God's law in Deuteronomy. He had, he had laid out for them, listen, if you fail to walk in obedience to my word, I'm going to send neighboring nations down. They're going to take you away into captivity. They're going to take you away to foreign nations. God had made that clear to them. But they failed to obey his word and to obey God. And they're now reaping what they sowed. But it would be in Babylon that God's purpose would prevail because it's there in Babylon that they will have a wake-up call and they'll realize now we've been following after idols we've been turning our back on God now they're brought to idol country of Babylon and they just get so sickened of that that they'd have a change of heart you know 
God will bring them back to the land and they'll never struggle with idols as they did before. Idolatry will never be a problem for Israel again because God's going to weed that out of them. Well, they'll have other problems. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) There'll be other things that they still need to get right with God, but they'll never fall into idolatry again like they had previously. And we see that people were despising God's word, scoffing at his prophets. It reminds us of what it's going to be like as the days get closer to an end. Days that we already see unfolding as to what Peter wrote in Second Peter 3. Verse 3 to 4, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Do you hear that? Scoffers are going to come. And they're going to be like, ah, come on. Is there really a God? Can he really do these things? You know, sadly, guys, the scoffing is, is beginning to happen even in the church, even among Christians where people are starting to scoff at the literalness of God's word. A, a, a flood to the whole earth and one man in an ark spares them. Come on. That's, that's not really what God means by that. That's not really what happened. There's scoffers now in the church. Believers, pastors that are starting to say, we can't really take God's word literally, scoffing at this. It's a mark of the end days. It's a mark that God's coming soon. Scoffers were a mark of the days just before the judgment. God's word was being poured out, but people weren't listening. People didn't want to accept it. They scoffed at it. And I pray that we're ready. We're ready to meet with the Lord because I believe he's coming soon. I believe the characteristic of what we see in our nation is a sign that God's got to come soon. There comes a point where there's no longer a remedy as it was for these people. And the question is, are you ready to meet God? Now, a lot of people say, oh, there'll be time. Nothing's going to change. Like the people here that Peter writes about, they're all saying, oh, there's nothing's changing. Things are going to continue on. I don't have to worry about this stuff. But you never know when you're going to breathe your last breath. You never know when you're going to stand face to face with God. And are you ready to answer that question? If God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What will your answer be? Because if your answer is anything along the lines of, well, because I'm just trying to be a good person. Well, because I go to church. Because I have a Bible at home. If your answer is anything to do with what you're doing, that's not the answer to get into heaven. The only remedy that God has provided for us to be right with God is through Jesus Christ and through our faith in Him. It's by grace you're saved, not of works. It's through faith in Him. It's grace. Jesus has done the work and you need to put your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That's the only remedy that we have to be saved. Stop holding off. Stop putting it off. Stop scoffing. Are you ready to meet God? Because he's real. And he's coming back again to bring his people to where he is. To enjoy eternal life with him. I'm ready for that. I'm excited. And I know I'm ready because my faith is not in what I do. It's in what Jesus has already done for me. By dying on a cross and paying the price for my sin. Paying the penalty for me to forgive me. That's where my faith is. Where's yours today? It's the only remedy that we have. Stop scoffing, putting it off, and be right with the Lord today. And that comes simply through you calling out to Jesus and saying, 
Yeah, Jesus, I recognize I need you. Save me of my sin. I repent, I turn from my sin, and I turn to you. That's all it takes. You do that right where you're sitting. You could tune out the rest of the message if, you don't, if you're not right with God. And you could just pray that, and it'll be far better than what I have to say. Make sure that you're right with God. If you don't know how to do that, come and talk with me after the service here. But understand that God is long-suffering. He's not wishing that any perish. But don't mistake his long-suffering for allowance. Allowance is though God's just letting you be fine in your sin. Don't mistake his long-suffering for allowance. Well, verse 17, we see this sack of Jerusalem come now at the hands of Babylon. Therefore, verse 17, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his land and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders. All these he took to Babylon. Verse 19, Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, many of the leaders in Jerusalem during Jeremiah's ministry were promoting false hope. They were all saying, listen, guys, everything's going to be fine. God's not going to let anything happen to this city. We're in the holy city, God. We've got the house of the Lord, the temple here with us in our midst. God's not going to let anything come against us. And they're promoting this false hope. And yet we see very clearly that God didn't care so much about the house of the Lord. He cared about, cared about the people of the Lord. God wasn't concerned so much about preserving a place as he was in purifying a people. So God's allowing this temple, the very place that he would show his glory, to be destroyed if it meant getting his people on track with him. So notice, God is behind this invasion and this eventual defeat of Jerusalem. This isn't a, a rogue nation just coming against God's people and God saying, ah, not much I can do. No, it says in, in, in verse 17, then he... God brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, which is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It's God that's in control here. God's doing all of this. So in 588 BC, what happened is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And it lasted for two and a half years. They would lay a siege around a city oftentimes to not allow anything into the city, not allow anything or anyone out. They would starve the people in the city. The people would get very weak to where they would just be able to have easy way into the city and, and just take them out. They'd be so weakened at that point. And for two and a half years this lasted, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had gotten into another altercation with the king of, uh, of Egypt and just kind of really put them in their place. He comes back. And so two and a half years this lasted, but it was in 586 BC that they finally broke through the walls and they came in. People were so weak at this point. The things that... Are recorded that they had to do for food was was horrendous. They're so weak. And they break in and they destroy the temple. They they take a number of people away into captivity and just sack the city. Now Jeremiah had been given a, a prophetic word from the Lord that would specify the length of time that they'd be captive in Babylon. It says in Jeremiah twenty five, verse eleven and twelve, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations 
shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So why 70 years? Well, back in Exodus 23, verse 10 to 11, the people were instructed to farm their land for six years and then on the seventh year, don't till the land, don't farm the land. Let it just lie fallow. Let it just kind of settle as it is. It was a Sabbath year. Let the land be. Give it a rest year. Well, the people of Judah had denied their land a Sabbath over a 490-year period. They owed their land. They owed their land and they owed God 70 years, basically, 70 Sabbaths. All right? So God would accomplish this by taking them to Babylon and having the land of Judah now sitting idle where it was given its Sabbath rest. 70 years they'd accumulated. And it was this word that was given to and recorded by Jeremiah that caused Daniel now, who's sitting in Babylon as a captive, to know the time frame of their captivity. This is so interesting. It says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2 to 3, in the first year of his reign, which was the reign of Darius, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. This is so neat because Daniel's sitting there in, in, in Babylon wondering like, Lord, is this ever going to end? What's the point of all this? And he's just flipping through God's word. Suddenly he sees Jeremiah's words. It's going to happen for 70 years. According to their Sabbath rest, Daniel's all of a sudden given energy, excitement, encouragement to know that there's an ending point to all of this. You know how we need to be those that are in God's word because we might be going through situations, circumstances where we feel like we're just a captive to our situation. Is there going to be ever any end to this? Get into God's word. Be encouraged with what God's doing because as we get into God's word, we begin to see that God is at work, that God is doing things. And he provides that encouragement for us to let us know again that he's on our side, that he's with us and for us, and that he's doing things when we oftentimes don't realize it. Daniel's given this great encouragement here. Well, it tells us to close the book here in verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Cyrus was a very unique man in that he was a man that God was going to use to aid his people Israel. And interestingly, this was all prophesied by the prophet Isaiah ahead of time, even before Cyrus was on the scene. In fact, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, records for us that when Cyrus made his grand entrance into Babylon, Daniel, who was an old man at this point, presented Cyrus with an ancient scroll of Isaiah. And in it was a letter addressing Cyrus by name. What's amazing is that Isaiah died 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Cyrus was 150 years from ever being a thought. And Isaiah records this in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 27 to 28. Who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, 
He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah is recording this thinking, well, God, we've already got a temple. What are you talking about? And who's this man, Cyrus? What are you talking about here? But yet God says, he's going to be my man, my shepherd, that's going to give instruction to Jerusalem to go and build the temple. Isaiah doesn't know that the temple is going to be sacked. An amazing prophecy given 150 years before Cyrus is even born. Do you know that we have a great God who has everything in control and worked out? I'm sure the Jews at times were thinking in Babylon, how are we ever going to get out of this? How are things ever going to turn around? Do you ever ask questions like that to God? Well, God had Cyrus lined up to be a shepherd to Israel and lead them out of captivity before they were even taken into captivity. Before they're even taken into captivity, God's got his way to get a people who's not in captivity out of captivity. How good is that? That's amazing. God is good. How we need just to trust the Lord. When we don't understand how things are going to work out, when we don't understand what God is doing, how we need to trust the Lord and realize, God, nothing takes you by surprise. You got this all worked out. Jeremiah would say, in chapter 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and, and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Amen. Amen. Nothing too hard for the Lord. And how we need to continue just to live our lives by faith in him. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to close with a song here this morning. If there's any worship team around, I'm going to borrow a guitar here. Okay. But listen, it's, it's, as they come, it's a noteworthy It's very noteworthy that in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the book of 2 Chronicles that's the last book of the Old Testament. Whereas we have the last book in our Old Testament is what? Malachi. You know how Malachi ends? Malachi ends with a curse. But in the Hebrew Old Testament, it ends with a word of promise to God's people. To do what? To the fact that God's going to be with them and, and let them go up. And how we need to realize too that God wants our lives to be encouraged. That we're being those that know that God's with us. And that we need to keep progressing upward in him. Because God has us. And God has great things in store for us. How we never need to doubt. But keep building our lives upon the Lord. So we're going to sing that song here. Let's stand up together.